Hello, everyone. My name is Alexis Richards. I am the president of Wagner Women, and thank you so much for joining us here tonight on International Women's Day for the kickoff panel event of our International Women's Day Symposium, Women Now. The COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting public health and economic disaster that followed in its wake have delivered a perfect storm of devastation for American women, especially women of color. Still, women were and always are the best part of the past year. As the majority of the healthcare workforce, women were the backbone of our nation's pandemic care and response. Women have been organizing their communities well before the pandemic, but their passion and dedication made all the difference in elections up and down the ballot in November. It seems impossible to fully explain all the ways in which women held it down this past year, but that's what Wagner Women is here to do and it's never stopped us before. And now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our moderator for this night's event. Um, Amy is an adjunct assistant professor of public service here at Wagner. She's one of my former professors and a true delight. So Amy, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks, Alexis. It's, um, it's an enormous privilege to be here tonight and to have the opportunity to moderate this panel of uh, fantastic women on International Women's Day um, 2021. So, as Alexis was talking about in her introduction, national and global crises are rarely gender neutral in their effect, and we can certainly agree COVID's been no exception. And the UN has identified across the globe the pandemic has caused not only crises of lost income and lost jobs, but also an explosion in women's unpaid domestic work and an increase in gender-based violence. And it looks likely that COVID-19 will have a lasting and substantial adverse impact on the global gender pay gap because women have been disproportionately adversely affected by the pandemic, further widening that pay gap. And here in the US, structural disparities in the labor market and knock-on effects of childcare that's either unavailable, limited, expensive, have led to a high negative impact on working women as the pandemic has unfolded. And underpinning this is fundamental inequalities in the American workforce that have been addressed for, unaddressed for a very long time. Namely, women tend to hold lowest paid, lowest status jobs across the economy, precisely those roles which have been most susceptible to the effects of the crisis. And devastatingly, we're also seeing that alongside these burdens, women of color in the US are facing what the New York Times has described as an acute shock with reported job losses among working women actually falling primarily on women of color. And in yet another layer of impact, the CDC has reported just last month that it wasn't possible to produce an accurate national picture of the impact of COVID on LGBTQ plus people because the US does not collect the necessary data. And the lack of data adds another chapter to a long history of invisibility and sidelining. Now, International Women's Day is about prompting us to look at the world through a gender lens, yet when we look globally at our response to COVID, we see a striking lack of women in decision-making. Men outnumber women by a global average of three to one in the bodies created to respond to the pandemic. And here in the US, the previous White House Coronavirus Task Force comprised 26 men and only two women with the current Health Equity Task Force being eight men and four women. And this absence of women has contributed to an inadequate policy response at regional and federal levels that has not considered women's all women's needs. What is clear is that women globally are facing a personal and work-life crisis 
that threatens to undo at least a decade of progress. And to discuss these challenges and to share their expert insight on this International Women's Day 2021, I'm joined by our eminent panelists who are researchers, analysts, commentators on matters of gender, race and intersectionality across multiple fields, including economics, technology, public policy and motherhood. So I'm very pleased to facilitate tonight's conversation between Ms. Nicole Bateman, Dr. Catherine Edwards, Ms. Angela Garbez, and Dr. C. Nicole Mason. I'd like to invite our panelists now to start videos and to introduce themselves to you. Hi, Amy. Thanks to you and Wagner Women for hosting this panel today and inviting me to participate. I'm very excited to join you all. I am Nicole Bateman. I am a senior research analyst at the Brookings Institution with their Metropolitan Policy Program. Uh, I already feel some connection to the Wagner community because um, like what many of you are working towards or may already have, I have an MPA, uh, which I received from the University of Washington's Evans School. Uh, at Brookings, I work on labor force and workforce issues with a particular focus on those our economy most often leaves out and leaves behind. And again, I'm really excited to be here with everyone and uh, to also learn from my fellow panelists. Good evening and thank you for having me. My name is uh, Dr. Catherine Edwards. I'm an economist and I work at the RAND Corporation, which is a think tank I hope you'll all apply to. Uh, we do all kinds of analysis that is contract and grant funded research. Uh, my areas of specialties uh, have really um, both come to the forefront. I, I look at gender inequality in women's labor supply, but I also am an expert on unemployment insurance. So it has been um, this this past recession um, and past pandemic, uh, I've been much more vocal and stepping into uh, uh, commenting uh, about these areas, and I am looking forward to the questions that y'all have. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Angela Garbez. I'm a journalist and a writer. Um, I'm the author of a nonfiction book called Like a Mother which explores the emerging science and cultural myths of pregnancy and motherhood. Um, I'm also the co-host of a podcast called The Double Shift, which um, challenges the status quo of motherhood in America. Um, my writings appear, appeared in a few different places. Um, I think a big part of the invitation to be on this panel um, is because I wrote a story for um, New York Magazine, which was part of their cover package called All Work and No Pay about how the COVID um, recession has been disproportionately impacting women. Um, and also to push that we see data, um, but I would say that I, like many other women and mothers, especially I'm the mother of two young girls, um, I've, I'm rich in lived experience um, and expertise of what uh, caregiving and unpaid labor looks like this year. I'm Nicole Mason. I'm president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with IWPR, we are the nation's um, probably only think tank focused on winning women's economic equity and increasing women's power and influence in society. Um, I actually have a really um, um, significant connection to Wagner. 
Um, and for about three or four years, I ran the Women of Color Policy Network at Wagner and um, was a professor there. And so, um, you know, very familiar with Wagner and the program and um, really enjoy seeing this um, organization uh, thrive. So um, in terms of my research, um, I focus on, on women's economic security. Um, the work, my work during the pandemic has been really about um, um, really hope shaping the narrative around women in the pandemic and the impact of the, the economic downturn on working women and their families. Um, and um, that's it. I've been, it's, it's, it's one year in <laughs> to the of the pandemic and it's um it's been a really great time for the organization but i also think it's been um a time for us to really think about like what sort of policies and um do we need at both the federal and state level for for women and families right now yeah and thank you very much um i'm so excited to facilitate this discussion amongst a panel of just unbelievable experts in your field um so as we said we have a lot of expertise in relation to labor and women's participation in the workforce. So um, many of you have written about women leaving the workforce due to the COVID-19 impact. And I wondered if we could start by discussing why um, the COVID-19 crisis and the exit of women has, has, disp has disproportionately impacted women in the economy. And I wondered if we could start with um, Dr. Nicole Mason. So I want to start out by saying that at the beginning of 2020, um, women made up about 50% of the workforce. And that was a milestone that we hadn't seen for 10 years since 2008, the, 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 the previous recession. And um, when COVID hit or, you know, stay-at-home orders were implemented, um, there was, you know, significant job losses in just a couple of months. So all the gains that we were celebrating at the beginning of 2020 had all been but wiped out. Um, and when we, and the reason why the gains were wiped out is because we lost jobs and um, serve the service sector, leisure, hospitality, healthcare services, and those jobs were are overrepresented by women and by women of color, um, particularly. And um, so, you know, so in, in a couple of months, we lost about 2 million jobs. Um, women lost more, four times as many jobs as men over the same period. Um, another huge, um, you know, point, data point that I want to share is that um, um, in August, uh, between August and September, when schools were slated to open, 865,000 women exited the workforce. And I was being interviewed and people were asking, well, why is that the case? And I said, well, it, it's just a no brainer. Schools were supposed to open and they didn't. And many families, working women were hanging on by a thread. At least I, I'm, I have um, 11 year old twins. So I was just waiting for school to start back. And when it didn't, you know, I had to make, you know, some tough choices. And for women who, in order to get paid, they have to show up at a physical location. Um, many of them made the tough to, tough choice to leave or exit the workforce. And so um, the other thing that I think in terms of, of this moment is, again, thinking about career mobility and what happens and, you know, making sure that not framing this as a voluntary, like voluntary, like women are not leaving voluntarily. Um, this is a result of 
you know, broken um, infrastructure, a broken care system, um, the proliferation of low wage jobs that um, mostly women uh, are <laughs> occupy. And so when COVID hit, the women who were economically vulnerable and struggling before the pandemic, uh, it was it was exacerbated by, um, you know, by COVID-19. So I'll stop there. Right, and um, Dr. Edwards, I wondered if you had any follow-up points. No, I mean, Nicole said it beautifully. I, you know, what I'll say is that in any recession, we expect people to drop out of the labor force, right? So, you know, you lose your job, the labor market is terrible. You know, in order to be an unemployed worker and to remain in the labor force, you have to be actively looking a little arbitrary, but it's the difference between a retiree and a person who wants a job is it's that it's the search. And we put a lot of emphasis on that in economics. Well, you know, if the labor market's terrible, you're not going to look that hard for a job if you don't really have the belief that you'll get one. And so in any recession, we see the labor force decline. And of course, in August uh, or in April of last year, the economy shed 22 and a half million jobs. And 40, and in leisure hospitality, they lost 45% of all of their jobs in a month. I mean, it, it catastrophic doesn't begin to describe. So we would expect that a lot of people who lost their jobs would have stayed out of the labor force because the labor market was so bad. And we would also expect that probably a lot of women who lost their jobs who had kids at home, you know, it just wasn't safe for them to go search, right? It didn't make sense for them to try and find a new job when no one was there to take care of their kids and they couldn't afford it anyway. But then there is this kind of separate push factor where it's not just that I lost my job. I had my job, but I couldn't keep it. I would stress though, that kind of on the issues of measurement that you brought up that we don't have great measures of the LGBTQ community. You know, we see people working and we, we see people searching and quitting, but we do not see all the horrible things that women have had happen to them in between. People who have passed up promotions, people who have, you know, went part-time, people who, you know, took themselves out of a competitive track. I mean, all these things have happened to women and we don't have a greatest sense of it. We just have these two extreme events that we measure and they were both terrible. Right. And then, Ms. Bateman, I know this, your work in this area has been, has been very deep as well. So, um, although it's, it's possibly hard to build on the comments already, already made, I wondered if you would like to comment on the, the disproportionate impact on the women's labor workforce. Yes, um, I, I completely um, agree with what has been said so far. It, uh, they're really great summaries of the situation that women are facing. I might underscore it um, with some specific statistics from some of my own research in particular. Um, I think uh, Dr. Mason alluded to many of the types of jobs that were being lost and jobs being lost in the low wage sector. And, um, you know, women, again, are concentrated in low wage jobs compared to men. So just to um, put that in perspective, um, before the pandemic, 46% of women earned low wages compared to 37% of men. So they were far more likely to earn low wages. And when um, many of the jobs that were lost were in sort of these low wage sectors where you can't work from home, where you're having to engage face to face, um, when a lot of those losses happened, women were hit especially hard. I think that's right, and that's a pattern that we're, we're seeing not only in the US, of course, but um, throughout Europe and, um, and globally as well. Um, 
So when we think about this, this lack of data and the sort of the systemic issues in sport here, what systemic changes do we see now, particularly in heavy relief, need to be made in order to perhaps prevent this happening again in the event of another pandemic or similar type of crisis, and also to perhaps take advantage of what has been laid bare with the current crisis? I'll leave that as an open question for any panel member who, who wants to dive in. And then I'll pick on someone, so don't be polite. I might just say a couple of opening comments before other and then others can chime in. Um, I think something that I've been thinking a lot about is um, that our policies should be giving women choices. They should be able to choose how they want to engage in the workforce. They should be able to choose if and how they have families and then how they combine those two roles. and. Um, our systems right now are not set up very well for women to actually have a true choice, right? It's not a choice. You don't have much of a choice to enter the workforce if you're, if childcare is so expensive that it takes almost all of your pay, for example. So I think that a lot of, um, a lot of our policy focuses, focus should be on making these choices, making it so that women actually have a choice and that it's a true choice. Do you have any specific um, specific changes in mind when you when you talk about choice? So I, I think an, an obvious one is making childcare more affordable. Uh, it's really not affordable in any U.S. state, and we know that when childcare is unaffordable, participation in the labor force among women is is um, is reduced. So um, funding the Child care development block grant to a greater extent, reducing those costs, particularly for low and middle income families, uh, could make that um, could make full participation in the workforce a better option for women. Okay, so so I can speak to a couple of things. So, so the policies, but also um, I think there needs to be a definitive shift in how we um, culturally about how we think about women in work. Um, so the fact of the matter is, is that women um, have been, you know, you know, up to 50% or, but, you know, a good 43 to 40 to 50% of the workplace for about uh, five decades now. Like, so women have been in the workforce, but we have not made accommodations for women in the workplace or the workforce. Um, so all the policies that we think about um, that we, we know make the difference, like a couple years ago, I always use this example because I think it's funny and people get it. So a couple years ago, there was a slew of articles written about how to accommodate the millennial in the workplace. Right. So there were articles written about like millennials like this. They don't like to, you know, um, they like titles. They like, you know, um, you know, to dress casually. They love work life balance. And so employers were scrambling to think about like how to accommodate this new workforce. So whole campuses were erected like Google campus where it's like super friendly. There's no, you know, all these things, cafeterias. We've never done that same thing for women, even though they're half the workforce, we haven't ever thought about, okay, what would make women 
you know, successful in the workplace? What sort of barriers do we need to remove? Um, and so, and that's a culture shift because again, there's still this very, this cultural tension. And I, I just saw it recently in an article about whether or not women should be working out of the home. And so they're like, well, you know, the systems are set up to say, well, if you want to work outside of the home, you're going to have to figure it out on your own. You're going to still have to participate in the workforce as if you have no children or you're unencumbered. Um, and so that impacts women's labor force participation. So um, at IWPR, we're thinking about and the recovery in long term, um, gender, like we, we frame it as a gender equitable recovery um, and thinking about, well, what do policies look like for a gender equitable recovery? But most of them are structural and systemic changes like a national child care infrastructure or care infrastructure where no family um, contributes seven to 10 percent, more, more than seven percent of their income to care. What might, what might that shift in terms of women's economic security, but how women participate uh, in the workforce? Um, again, a slew of other policies, you know, paid sick leave, paid family leave, maternity leave. I just want to say it's been 11 years since I've been, been at Wagner 10 years ago, um, so I'm sure some things have changed. But when I was there from maternity leave, I had to cobble together vacation time and sick leave. <laughs> to take for my maternity leave. There was no maternity leave policy um, at that time. Hopefully there is now. But what I'm saying is that, and that's because, um, and, and Wagner is pretty progressive, I would say. Um, and we had a woman dean at the time, I'm sure, I think you still do. But that is, those are the sort of no brainers. And I remember somebody saying, oh, I think we should have put a changing table. All these women are having babies, you know? And I was just like, why? <laughs> so anyway, I just say that part of the policy changes is both cultural, but also policy change at both levels. But I think those th things go hand in hand. I wonder if I could bring in Ms. Gobez, because obviously you've written extensively about pregnancy and motherhood and structural inequalities in that space. So I wonder if um, if I could invite you to to comment on, on on what we're discussing. Sure. I mean, I think in this moment, building off of what Nicole just said, I think it's really important just to, if we like widen out, let's just say the truth, which is that women are expected to do domestic work, um, whether you have children or not. The expectation is there that women are supposed to do domestic work as though they don't have a life outside of the home. And then when they go to work outside of the home, um, you're expected to work as though you don't have any sort of family, right? And those are, you know, those are massive responsibilities people have. You know, we have to talk about how motherhood and parenting is a full-time job that requires this amount of care work, right? Um, that domestic work is in fact the work that makes all other work and you know capitalism possible, and we've never valued that. So I think you know, as long as we're talking about policies, like what would it be like? So yes, of course, like affordable childcare. Yes, of course, family leave, which by the way, these two policies are not specific to women. So like we're talking about this, these are not niche issues that are only affected to women. Like women dropping out of the workforce, 50% of the population being like disproportionately affected. This is like the biggest economic story of the year. It is not specific to our gender, right? Um, so I think that there's just a really important point there about it's an opportunity to reframe the conversation. Um, and I think, you know, also as someone who works in media and journalism, I think it's very important that we talk about um, language like, uh, you know, again, like we, we're doing it a little bit like this is like a really difficult choice that, that women are making. And that's really not, um, it's not true. Again, like it's not a choice to, um, you know, send your child to jail, send your kids to childcare 
if the childcare is closed or if childcare, you know, costs more than what you make. So we need to be talking about how what we're doing from the beginning is, as Nicole was saying, you know, we don't set up choices. Like this is not, these are impossible, unsustainable situations and they always have been. Um, I don't know, I've been sitting here bubbling up with all of these things, agreeing, you know, with everything that we're talking about. Um, I think, you know, one other thing that I want to go back to is, you know, as, as Catherine was saying, you know, who gets counted in data, right? Like, I think one important thing too, is we lose sight, we hear these overwhelming numbers, you know, like 2.5, 2.1 million women have like dropped out of the workforce. Like that's 2.1 million individual stories of loss. That is really, um, we don't hold space to have this sort of, um, to grieve that and to talk about like those personal losses. And I think that that's something that's very, that's very significant. And I think also it's worth pointing out that there are so many domestic workers and caregivers who were never counted in the first place, who were getting paid under the table, who when COVID started happening, the expectation was that, you know, like people just stopped paying them. They had to stop going to work. So I think that's also um, just to toss that in um, here that we, I want to talk about what, who was never counted in the first place, because I think we need to just acknowledge that too. You know, I'll, I'll, can I just jump in real quick? I mean, you you said the word systemic. You know, what what is it that is just system wide that has to change? And one thing that I think we should talk about more is how much federal policy is geared around getting women to get married. I mean, it is written in legislation. The answer for single moms is to get a husband. And I say get mm -hmm. a husband and not get a partner or get a spouse because the legislation that this that I'm referring to passed a month before the Defense of Marriage Act. Like it's very clear Congress's policy making pivots from a place that women are somehow making a mistake. Like if you're a single mom, you need to get married. So you're messing up and that's why that's hard. And if you're, you know, if you're married and it's, and you can't afford childcare, you know, you should try harder, right? There's not really a policy that's child first or that's work force first. It's, it's, they're both very much imbued with both overt and subtle judgment about women's choice or lack of choice. And so we get to this kind of extreme moment where we're in a pandemic, childcare is closing, all of these problems are coming to the forefront, but it's not a problem of this year. It's a problem of 25 years ago. I mean, I, I tell people that the, you know, the reason why everything is so hard right now is because the federal government has never made an investment in working women. Mm -hmm. They haven't done it. You don't have paid family leave, you don't have paid sick leave, you don't have access to childcare, and you don't have access to after school programs unless you're lucky enough or rich enough to get them. That is, the, that is what an investment would look like that was child first and wouldn't, wasn't centered on whether or not the woman was married, wasn't centered on what her job was, wasn't centered on her industry, and wasn't centered on whether or not we all thought her husband did enough. That they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be factors in whether or not women have access to work. So in my introduction, I talked about an absence of women's voices at the, the policy setting stage. So the absence of women in the room when these critical conversations are happening about what gets supported and what gets put forward. Um, I'd like to invite the panelists to, um, to comment on this absence of women in these key decision-making roles or even in key consultative roles and the impact of that absence. Well, I mean, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think that um, it's true that women are underrepresented in Congress and 
state legislatures. But what I'm excited about in this moment is that we are at the table, um, you know, and and it's not just white women, okay? It's it's women of color. And so I was reading this article in the Washington, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal, and the the headline or the with the headline said, why isn't Biden, why isn't the Biden administration listening to the experts? And I was like, he is, he's just not listening to white men, Larry Summers, like he, that's, that's what's going on. But there, what I'm, what I'm excited about in this moment is that we are at the tables, like the $40 billion that was in the childcare that passed in the, in the stimulus package was because of advocates and women you know, um, and that whole package, in my opinion, is reflective of a collective effort of, of advocates and, and people who have been doing this work for decades. Um, it's reflected in that package. Now, the, 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 on the other side, there are people who don't like what's in the package. To your point around marriage, um, someone, I read an article about the stimulus package and the, the, the advance payments for the earned income tax credit and someone said, to your point about marriage, they said, well, we think that this would discourage work and marriage. And I was just like, what is, what, <laughs> what are those two things there? But that is a, you know, that is a, that's a cultural narrative about who's deserving, who's worthy of support. It's racialized. It's all those things all at the same time. And so what I'm happy about is that those of us who are in these seats, like, the NIWPR, Fatima Gosgraves at the National Women's Law Center, and a lot of other colleagues, um, that you know, we're pushing back against those harmful narratives and stereotypes about marriage promotion and the like. Angela, I think you, I cut you off. No, it's okay. Um, I, I'm not sure what. What I was going to say now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so I'll I'll take that point and say that it, um, I think that I it would be remiss if I didn't say that a, there's a lot of blame to put on the economics profession. It's very male. Um, it's very white. Um, it is uh, criminal how few black female economists. Not only how few we have, but how few we graduate in a year. We're talking in the single digits. Like maybe there'll be three this year. It is a grossly underrepresented of different voices and it very much characterizes how the research is done, what the questions are, and who answers them. Right? It, it changes how we think about things. I, one of um, you know, Bill Spriggs, who's an economist at Howard, says when they do studies of racial wage gaps, they'll put IQ on the right-hand side. So like, tell me that they understand that there's discrimination against black workers in the labor market if they're if they're trying to control for IQ, which is basically saying that the reason why black people are paid less is because they must be dumber, is something that appeared in economics journals, you know, here's shock, while we were all alive, right? It's not like that stopped in the 50s. So 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 I think that there's a there's a sense at which the economics profession has an outsized influence on policymaking in the US. You know, the White House has multiple councils related to economists. They, they are at the Federal Reserve, which controls monetary policy. And it is, it is, there are not enough women at the table there. Uh, and we have stalled in progress for advancing females in economics, advancing women in economics. Um, we've been stalled for about 30 years. And so I, I think that it's, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up about my own profession. Um, it's, 
it's, I could talk a lot about my profession, but like this isn't, this isn't a support group for people who got an economics PhD and need to talk about it. But I will say that I think that it's, it's a place where we need more people to come in and, and talk. But I, to your point, you know, the, the people who were debating monetary policy, there's a bunch of really famous economists over 60 who were white men. And it was, you know, that conversation had no one represented in it. And so these, these echelons and these tiers of prestige, they take a while to change. And so we need more voices. And if anyone on the call is even slightly interested in economics, I hope I haven't done a really bad job, but you can reach out to me and I will convince you why it could be really good. Um, but it's, it's, that's, a, that's an important part, that that's a place where for all the victories that Nicole is talking about, this is a big loss that'll stay a loss for a while. But we do have, I, I would be remiss if we didn't also mention that Cecilia Rouse is the new director of, you know, chief, um, the head of the Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. And there's Heather Boucher and there's, you know, a lot of economists who are front and center, at least in this administration and um, who understand gender, who understand inequality, racial inequality, racial stratification. Um, and so, you know, we're an economic institute, you know, IWPR is an economic-based institute. So, you know, familiar with the challenges, but I, you know, it's not, I mean, the field doesn't have a lot of economic women, economic PhDs, but in this moment, the ones who've been doing the work in the trenches for at least, you know, decade, you know, decades now are really who we're looking to, to sort of shape and get us out of, you know, get, you know, move us towards a recovery. So I think that is, you know, to be celebrated. No, so yeah, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we we have more voices at the table of people who are there, but it's a there's a there's a limit to the profession because of how many people aren't Cecilia Rouse, um, who is awesome. Uh, that's not the greatest word to describe her. I'll come up with something that sounds better. She's just awesome, but <laughs> but <laughs> something that sounds a little bit more professional. So do we um, do we do we see perhaps a parallel between the um, the increased collectivism around political action and the you know clear results that we saw in the recent election of that? Are we starting to see a similar, although perhaps smaller, increase in whose voices are there at the forefront of these big conversations when previously the room would have been filled by white men over the age of sixty? And I suppose following on from that, my then question to you would be, why is, as Ms. Garbett said, why is the biggest economic story of all time, you know, not shaping up more clearly and not formulating itself more clearly? Yes. But I think it is though. I mean, at least, I mean, as, since the pandemic started and it became clear that women were disproportionately impacted, you know, this has been the story of that. It was the story of 2020 and it's also the story of 2021. Um, and, you know, I can just speak for myself and IWPR, you know, and colleagues, like I, I literally do about six interviews a day on the economic impact of the economic downturn on women. Like literally, like I turned down three today talking about it. And so I'm saying like, it is, I think 
what is problematic to me in this moment is that even though it is the biggest story, there's a, you know, in Congress, there's a white man over 60 who, you know, despite the data, despite, despite the reality, are obstructionist. <laughs> and that is that is the story about like, and I when I was on something last week and I said, I just would think we just need to question why the resistance, you know, like why why are these white men, old white men holding the country, people, the economy hostage, like, and nobody in that, why isn't that with this story about like this moment? And then like, what is this moment about? Cause it makes it that much harder for us to move policy, you know, to advance, you know, the $15 minimum wage, everybody supports it except for, you know, white, white men and, you know, some white women, and I, I want to be very clear that it's white, old white men, but it's also white women as well. Um, so that is also um, a dynamic. So before we, we start to take questions coming in, um, coming in from participants, if we start to think forward in time to a time when we have the pandemic under control and we reach what is continuously referred to as our new normal, what changes do you think we might see staying, positive or negative, for um, women post-pandemic? And are there any changes that you're hoping to see come or stay? I wonder if I could, uh, if I could bring in the statement to start off. Yes. So I think tying back to your previous question um, and the responses around so much of the policy is related to culture, right? Um, and I'm hopeful at least that the fact that this conversation is so front and center in the media, in academia, in the policy world, that there may actually actually start to be some shifts in culture because I do think that those are important um, and essential really. And, um, you know, the, the policy, the policy solutions seem like so small potatoes in some way to like achieving that social change, which I'm not an expert in by any means. Um, so focusing on the policy side, um, I think that some things that on a very basic level that I'm hopeful, even though it didn't make it into this bill, uh, or in, into the latest COVID relief package that something we'll hopefully see is an end to, or an increase to the minimum wage and an end to tipped minimum wage. I think that um, particularly ending the tipped minimum wage, which um, allows employers to pay people less than minimum wage who receive tips uh, could go a long way to closing these gaps that we're seeing between men and women, but also between um, women of color and white women, um, because those tipped minimum wage jobs are essentially just an opportunity for additional racial and gender discrimination. I think um, I'd just like to add, you know, this, I just want to talk about the term the new normal. Um, I think it's worth pausing for a minute to just be like, is what are, I guess it all kind of depends on like, what's our standard? What's our, what's the limit of our imagination on what the new normal is? Like, normal was pretty shitty for a lot of people to begin with, right? So let's talk about like, I don't wanna to get to a new normal. I think it's a great place for people to, to be thinking forward thinking. You know, I love what Nicole was saying, like here are people who have been in the trenches for 20 years, like 
let's look to women of color, let's look to people who are closest to the problems, therefore closest to the solutions, right? I think we need to be really ambitious in our definition of what a new American normal could be. And I think that there's, you know, there's policy level, like I am not a policy expert. I'm thinking about, you know, because changes are happening, it's because someone's been working at it and organizing at a very grass, grassroots level for probably 10 to 20 years. And so I think that there is an opportunity here. I think there's a sense among people, among women, among mothers um, who are being threatened to vanish into domestic life to understand the power of organizing. Um, and I hope that there's like in community engagement at that very basic level, which really does drive change. I, I'll add just to go in the complete opposite direction, even though I really loved what you just said that, you know, this isn't charity, you know, women's economic participation is vital to our economic recovery. You know, the, the size of the US economy is very much determined by the number of people working. It's a really clear relationship how fast we will recover and how large our economy will be rest on women. It rests on women going back to work and getting back into the labor force. And if they're met with barriers, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Like that's, that's not a matter of, you know, will, will Congress finally find it in like the good of their heart to, to help us? Like this is, this is the economic policy that is absolutely an appropriate response to the downturn that we've lived through. And it is, it is overdue. We should have had it 40 years ago, but it, it is the policy that the economy needs to recover to its fullest extent is a comprehensive plan to promote childcare and to promote working parents um, that disproportionately have a care burden who are women. Dr. Mason, are there any changes that you've seen that you might hope would stick or ones that you haven't seen that you might hope would come? Um, um, so I, so what I think is that this is a unifying moment, um, for a lot of women, um, you know, um, both because, because many of us internalize the problem of care. So we internalize it as an individual problem, um, or we just did the work of, you know, the unpaid labor without complaint because that's what's expected of us. I think in this moment, what has become clear is that it's not an individual problem. It's a systemic and structural issue. And corporate women are struggling with some of these issues in different ways, albeit, and then women on the front lines, essential workers. And so, you know, it has become, um, you know, an issue that I think we understand that it's not, this is not something that an individual corporation or employer needs to change. It's a system that's been broken, um, that women have sort of, you know, navigated it, but it is no longer viable. And so I'm really excited because it gives us this moment, this Overton window or moment where we can push for the kinds of systemic changes that, um, you know, we want to, um, you know, want to see. I was um, intrigued to see commentary from three CEOs of some of the largest um, investment banks uh, with, with bases in, in New York talking about how their hope for the post-COVID world would be that their workers return to the offices um, as quickly as possible and that actually their hope for the new normal would actually be the old normal. And it struck me as so far out of step with, you know, 
a vast majority of the conversations that pretty much everyone else has been having that it, it did make me wonder, you know, to what extent our structures and our institutions and our policymakers, to what extent do we feel that there is actually going to be um, any ability to capture this impetus and to take this, this drive that we feel um, and that we see, but which for some reason just isn't making it through what we might call perhaps a glass ceiling of, of policymaking. And I'm not talking just about public policy, I'm talking about, you know, just corporate policies um, as well, which is obviously much more flexible and changeable than um, policy at a, a local or national level. Do we have any thoughts on a sort of a, a policy glass ceiling and whether in, in fact, we have the, the momentum to start moving through that more than- Well, I think that like on a policy level, sorry, um, on a policy level, we do, we are seeing people, companies, corporations examine their workplace practices and policies. Um, we're seeing at the federal policy level conversations around, you know, speeding up or expediting the like Paycheck Fairness Act and some other, you know, policies. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's happening, but it's, you know, I don't want to see after the employment numbers go down and everybody's vaccinated that we just sort of turn away. I'm hoping that we continue to stay engaged. Um, and can I just, so someone in the thing said about, um, there's a question in the Q&A about broadening the narrative from celebrating the few have made it to senior level positions to acknowledge there's still such serious gaps and how do we close them? Oh, I don't have that. So please, <laughs> please do um, share that with me. So I want to have put some context around this stuff, right? So, you know, the idea that we do have so, so, so much, we have so far to go in terms of um, gaps and how to, in, in closing them. I do want to acknowledge that I've been in this, I've been doing this work for 30 years and there's not 20 years ago, the people who were in the room were not women of color, women of color who were grassroots organizers. I'm a community organizer. You know, you know, it's just, it's, I don't, I think it's a both and, but I don't want to dismiss the fact that there is a black woman running the Council of Economic Advisors for the first time in US history and holding many positions across the administration and running national organizations that are shaping what's happening right now. That is historic, that is unprecedented, and and they're all mostly women of color. So that, that rubs me the wrong way because I think that in this moment, we do have to recognize the struggle that has taken many of these women in these very male-dominated fields, especially economics, to reach this level and be considered experts and and shaping policy in this way. I think that's a that's a very valid point. And um, there's there's another I've I've got the um, the questions coming in from the audience members, and I want to, want to make sure that we address those. So there's a question about um, when interviewing for jobs. Are there questions that um, the panel would suggest should be asked of employers to enable those being interviewed to gauge levels of support for um, women workers in workforces. And I wonder, um, Ms. Bateman, if I could bring you in on, on that one first. Yeah, um, others, please definitely chime in because I'm just sort of spitballing here. Um, but I think, um, 
I, I don't know if the things that I would ask would necessarily be in an interview, but you should definitely assess sort of the benefits package. I think also that a lot of employers or at least a lot of conscious employers are moving towards publishing uh, diversity and inclusion statistics on their websites and making that sort of openly available. Uh, so I think that those are some easy things to sort of look into, particularly with, um, with stacks ahead of time. That's something you can see if there's anything on the employer's website or in the media as well, if it's a larger employer. And I would suggest also, um, you know, perhaps taking a, a, a sort of a, a sense check, which is, is this an employer who has cut and pasted the minimum wording, which everybody has on all of their websites and put it onto a web page, which has a picture of a group of employees that might or might not reflect the actual constitution of the workforce. And when you go to the place for interview, who do you see and how do people talk to each other and how do people interact and what pictures do they have on the wall when you walk into your interview. Um, so perhaps also consider not only what type of questions you might ask an individual employer, but think about how you can get a sense for um, the sort of softer side of how, how this employer might, might see women in their workforce. And certainly who's interviewing you. Um, you know, if you have four interviews and there's, you know, you don't have an interviewer of color or a woman you know, that's a pretty obvious, I think that's a flag that maybe they would even know not to, you know, display now, but, um, you know, yeah, who's interviewing you and how they discuss the uh, workplace culture. Um, culture is something that I have found in interacting with private firms that they all take incredible pride in. And so that's a really, like, because it's hard to ask something, hard to ask about something that people can do really bad about. Um, and so you have to be like inquisitive, but not antagonistic. And so workplace culture is something they typically take pride in. But then if they use vacuous language, it's kind of a clear like, oh, they value all women. They don't have any that I think that there's ways to judge it. And then the other thing that's always nice to ask people about is how do they plan on growing? And that'll be really quick. Like we, we want to have a, we are pursuing a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative. We want to hire more people that look like this. If they're, if their plan for growth sounds like a place that they're going in the direction that seems like women would be part of it, that's another kind of like a, and not like relatively innocuous question that could be very revealing based on how they answer. I would say both of those. Um, and if I think of any more, um, I'll, I'll put them in the chat. I had a couple more just come up. Um, so I've had a job interview before where I looked at the board for the organization and everyone was white, 75% were male. It was a question I asked in the interview and I asked about diversity on the board and they gave me some answer about trying to diversify sort of the industries represented, which they clearly just very much missed the mark. I didn't take the job. The other thing I would say is like really take advantage of this NYU Wagner network, um, at least in my experience, um, alumni of my program are very willing to do informational interviews, like just reach out to anyone in your network if you are looking, um, looking at an organization and you know someone from your program was, was there. I have found that those conversations, you get the, the best information and people are fairly candid about workplace culture too. 
Yeah, we have I, I mean, I would encourage you if you have a question, you know, to link, reach out on LinkedIn. I found that people are very generous with their time, especially if you say, I'm just not sure whether or not to take a job here. Like, I, I, I found people to be very generous. And, and, I, and, it's, and it's hard to judge. I mean, companies can have subcultures of brilliant, thriving, you know, intersectional feminist groups and a place that seems like a horrible place to work. And so the culture that matters to you is the one that you would interact with. And that can be the hardest to discern beforehand, but could, you know, would make the biggest difference. You know, having a female CEO wouldn't matter if you're on an all-male team um, and like in the reverse also. So yeah, definitely, Nicole, excellent idea, reach out. So another question from one of our attendees tonight is, um, as we explore the pandemic's impact on economic justice. The um, person posting the question would like to hear more about the link between access to reproductive healthcare services for women and long-term economic security and how the pandemic has influenced this, this intersection. So does the panel have any comments upon access to reproductive healthcare and long-term economic security? Well, I was just waiting. Um, but, you know, obviously during the pandemic, um, some states have seized upon the opportunity to um, tighten um, and pass restrictive um, legislation, closing clinics, um, um, you know, imposing wait, wait, uh, waiting periods. Um, and uh, many of those have been challenged in, in court um, as, you know, um, violation of individual rights um, and, and as unconstitutional. Um, but at IWPR, we have the Center for the Economics of Reproductive Health, where we look at these questions, the intersections between reproductive health and economic justice. Um, what is really true is that we won't know the impact of the pandemic on women's economic rights and freedom until probably, you know, several months or years after because, you know, um, it takes time to, to know and understand. But what I do know is that, you know, stay at home orders, you know, clinic closures, um, the attacks on rights as a result and, you know, framing it around COVID um, has been real for women during the, the, you know, the pandemic, as well as for women who have lost their jobs or, you know, um, you know, who don't have resources to access the full range of reproductive health care services. Um, but they're really very active campaigns, which I'm really very, uh, you know, um, we'll see how they wind. Um, but, you know, active campaigns right now to repeal the Hyde Amendment. And, um, and so that's also really active. And again, sits at the intersections of reproductive health and women's economic security. And um, I think there's some intuition you can build here as well. Um, so I tell people, you know, when you think about what could be the potential effect of having, you know, free childcare in the US, just imagine how catastrophic it would be if you found out that all public schools were going to stop offering kindergarten and first grade. Right. And you would say like this was, you know, it's a it's a clear intuition builder of what the opposite would look like. So, you know, current frontiers of reproductive health and policy 
you know, like Nicole said, it can be hard to know what the effects are of something that's happening in real time. But we know from when the pill was introduced in 1960 that it greatly increased women's labor supply and that there is a relationship here between your access to contraceptive health and your ability to make contraceptive choices and women's workforce labor force participation. So that intuition is, is really strong and that connection is there. And kind of the marginal effects of these policies that pop up that we you know, have to judge in real time, your question is, is on the nose of what's at stake. So I wondered if we could um, spend a few moments talking about the, um, the impact of COVID on women outside the workforce, because there's, there's a lot that has been said in relation to the highly measurable participation of women in the workforce, or at least the relatively highly measurable participation of women. Um, I wondered if anyone has any observations about the impact that COVID has had on life for women outside of the workforce and any ways in which you know things have changed dramatically that's not specifically related to a work context well i mean when you say outside of the workforce you're saying outside of professional workforce work outside of the home um and i just like to respectfully reject that frame um mm -hmm. because it's work it's all work again domestic work underlies and makes our economic system possible. So I think it's a good moment to just think about how this is a, a way to reframe that. You know, we're talking a lot about work. Um, I think it was Nicole who brought up the, the concept just of deservedness. And I mean, I think it's really, I mean, again, if we're talking about just, if we wanna dream about a new normal, you know, I think of like the COVID payments that came around this summer, that first economic relief package, that to me was sort of an experiment. And what if we just paid people? What if we just assumed that people are deserving and worthy of a certain level of ease and comfort and we gave them cash? Because we know that cash actually is, surprise, it's, it's a really effective um, way of helping people who don't have money. <laughs> um, so I think that, um, you know, like if you, if you were to offer people, you know, why do we really, I mean, like work, the idea of the workforce creates, work is not, who we are. Work is a coercive condition of survival under like the system that we live in. So I think it's just really important to name that, right? It is also personally fulfilling. It is also a means in which we identify ourselves and make meaning. It is all of those things. Um, but it doesn't have to be all of those things to everyone. Um, so I'd like to see, I think this is a moment, you know, and I, I think there's like seeds of this, you know, we have Mitt Romney talking about, still it's tied to family and children, right? Mitt Romney was talking about, you know, paying people who have kids. We see in the new package, you know, the child tax credit, um, which would give people cash payments instead of just doing that, like waiting for your return. But what if we were to make that permanent, right? And what if we don't make those things conditional? What if we just decide that, you know, a human being is worthy of certain human rights from the beginning and we don't tie that to work, right? And if we need to work, if we need to define it in terms of work, let's just say that being alive and taking care of yourself and taking care of a family is work. Um, I think we need a more expansive definition of what work is and in terms of what that means for our self-worth and identity. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, of intuition building, um, I would say another kind of data point to, to keep in mind is that uh, we also think that domestic violence 
is less likely the more financially independent a woman is. So when we talk, you know, I think Angela was, you know, absolutely right that we work and sometimes we get paid for it and sometimes we don't. And I think for a lot of women, it can feel like they bleed together and you don't know where worth comes from. But for women who are not in the labor force and who are not selling their, their work, whether formally or informally, we know that that just means that they have less economic power in society and they also have less economic power in their marriages. And, you know, one thing we did learn from China's lockdown and then retrieval is that there was a divorce boom and we could probably expect something similar in the United States that there will be a spike in marriages ending, but that should, you know, which I think obviously people are going to write like pieces about what this means for marriage. And like, I'm sure I'm just like waiting for the headline, like is marriage dead? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it, but I think the part that we would have to keep in mind is that if a marriage ends, um, that means that there's a danger of domestic violence for a woman who does not have economic independence. And that, that, that is something that we need to be mindful of, of like as marriages are coming to a close, as, as women are trying to seek teeth out of a situation, that's not always possible. And that's something that we should um, keep in mind. It's the underhanded, it's the other part of what Angela was saying of not being paid. Well, the, the, I, think the, I, think that's, I think that's right. There's a clear link between women who are, you know, in domestic violence relationships and lack of economic security. I think the point is well taken about whether or not people deserve a basic standard of living and income so that women you know, their economic security or well-being is not, you know, like if you don't have a job, because even in this moment here, some women will not be able to re-enter the workforce. It's just not going to happen. They have caretaking responsibilities. They have mental health, they have other challenges. And the idea that regardless of whether or not you can go to a nine to five or sign up with a corporation, do you deserve a basic standard of living, housing, income, health insurance, like in so many other countries where that is the case. And so I think what I'm excited about in this moment and you know, is that we have the, we're having those conversations. A year ago, basic income, direct payments directly to people were was considered crazy talk. You know, like it was not, you were laughed out of the room. Today we're doing it. And so I do hope I, I'm, I want that some of the things that we're doing now, because we actually see that they can be done. I want to figure out if we can make them make some of these changes permanent. Again, a year ago, working from home five days a week was again, considered you know, uh, an accommodation. Um, and so now we know that that, that again, takes, that changes our relationship to work. So I think that we can figure out how to make and build a more equitable economy, a more equitable society. We just, we just need the public will to, you know, do it and make the changes and the structural changes that will make all these things possible. So thinking alongside it, there's sort of you know the, the economic work and the not directly economic work, thinking outside of that box a little bit more. One of the things that has been particularly noticeable for me across um, my groups has been an impact on um, self-care and the sort of mental health consequences 
for, I think, disproportionately women as the pandemic has unfolded. And I wondered if anyone on the panel has any, um, has any thoughts or reflections upon you know, things as simple as dramatic reductions in me time through to you know, the increase in gender-based violence perhaps brought about as a result of people just being together a lot more than, than had previously been the case. Um, any, any thoughts across the panel about mental health implications? Um, for women and, and, and also importantly, you know, what steps policymakers might need to think about alongside all of the focus on you know, economic direct and indirect consequences. I mean, I think that it's, we should just name it like this is a mental health crisis for everyone. Like, I don't, I don't know any, I am not okay. Um, I, there are no boundaries in my home, you know, like I, I'm not okay. Um, I don't really want to know anyone who is okay at this point. Um, if you're okay, I think you you probably lack any sort of empathy. Um, so I think I think it's really important to talk about that. Um, and I think you know, obviously, one of the things I'd like to see is that we need to we need to have things like uh, you know access to healthcare that includes mental health as like that's a huge stigma. Like we can sort of get behind someone having heart surgery, but the idea that someone needs to would go to see a therapist, there's, there's a lot of stigma in different communities for that. Um, so I think to be talking about it is a huge um, first step. Uh, yeah, but systemically it's very, it, you know, people are unable to access the very basic mental health services that they need right now. Yeah. The, I. Um... I really agree uh, with everything just said, Angela. I um, the other thing that I have been reflecting on is I think that women are also probably having very different experiences of um, of like of this new acceptance that we are all struggling. Right? I, I imagine that women who are in jobs with a little more flexibility, who have good health care are able to like have these conversations a little bit more openly and seek the care that they need right now. Whereas people who, who don't have flexible jobs or don't have good health insurance uh, would, would maybe struggle there. So I, I haven't seen data on this, but I'll be interested to sort of see if there's any um, like long-term attitude changes and how that might break down by sort of economic circumstances during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I mean, I'll speak to personal experience. Um, I gave birth to my son in December of 2019, and I rolled straight from maternity leave into pandemic quarantine. So I have three months on all of y'all, and I was not happy in maternity leave. I, 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 it was not for me. Staying at, believe it or not, staying at home made me sad. It's just so funny to think back, but, but I had done something which, um, like looking back was probably one of the better decisions I've ever made in my life, which is I scheduled a postpartum visit for four weeks after my due date, like two months before I gave birth. I just got the appointment and um, that was in January. I talked to the woman. She was she was very helpful, and I, at the time, I had insomnia. That's that's how my postpartum kind of manifested. It was just impossible for me to fall asleep. And so, in February and March, we had had telehealth visits, which I was like, "This is so weird." Like I'm talking to her on Facetime. Like this does like this is so awkward. 
but it was also the only way I could go because I had an infant who cried all the time. And this, yeah. So, so I, I would never say that I would count myself lucky to have gotten postpartum, but at the same time, like when the pandemic started, I was three months into a treatment for feeling isolated and, and alone at home and dealing with my like erosion of self that came from having a kid and childcare duties. And she gave me a toolkit that worked, you know, we, we talked through the first four months and I'm really lucky that I had that. I mean, one of the things, the first thing she told me was that we're all grieving something and you need to treat this like loss and not like you're not doing enough. Like, you know, write down a list of all the things you've lost from being at home. So, so yeah, I mean, and we're all going to need so much therapy after this, and we all need the attention in self-care that will get us through this and will give voice to things like you're grieving something. But I hope that with changes in how we access health services, that, you know, if you can just have a Zoom call with someone to talk through your problems, that changes access for people who don't have to drive, don't have to find care for their kids. You know, I had one of my calls with her, my child was in his crib crying for almost 45 minutes and I knew he couldn't hurt himself and I just really needed to talk to her, right? And like, that's the type of thing that you can't do in an office, but you can do at your home. And so I hope that there are innovations in how we reach people because we've had to force that issue through the pandemic pandemic and hopefully we can harness it for good afterwards. I'm so sorry to have to draw this to a close and I want to say a heartfelt thanks to everyone who's shared both you know deep professional insights and also obviously towards the end some deeper personal insights as well. I, I really appreciate the candor and expertise and honesty that I've seen across the panel tonight and I want to express my thanks as well to um, our organisers for putting on this event. So thanks very much to um, Bridie and Karen and also to Alexis for, for organizing. And thank you so much to my panelists this evening. Um, Alexis, I'll hand back over to you. Thank you so much, Amy. And thank you everyone for joining us this evening. This was a fantastic conversation. I think it's a it was an honest conversation and one that we've all been sort of desperate to have um, in this past year, it, just today in general, it's truly been um, such an honor to hear from all of you. On behalf of all of Wagner Women and our executive team, I just want to thank everyone so much for joining us this evening. Wish you yet, yet again another happy International Women's Day. 